1 John <clears throat> chapter number 2. First John and chapter number two. We've been uh, dealing with this idea <clears throat> of that you may know, and that God wants us not to be a, a hope so salvation, but a no so salvation. And you can be assured, not based on a feeling, but based on a fact, that you can know that you know that you know that you're saved. You can legitimately tell someone, "I'm a hundred percent sure." And not because you feel like you're 100% sure, because you know you are, based on the authority of God's words, uh, not what a church has said or what an individual has said, but what God says. So John wants us to have that 100% no-so salvation. And so <clears throat> we've been dealing with um, these tests or verifications in 1 John to show uh, this is the way we know a person is indeed a believer. This is how you can work out your own salvation, test yourself, whether you be in the faith or not. Okay, so 1 John chapter number 2, if you found your place there and you're able to, uh, let's stand to honor the reading of God's word. <coughs> 1 John chapter number 2 and verse number 7 is where we're going to pick up our writing, our reading. We will be doing no writing, just reading, okay? 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 7. <clears throat> Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have uh, had from the beginning. <clears throat> the old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But... He that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. We're going to preach tonight on this subject, the test of love. The test of love. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. And uh, if you didn't get a handout, um, Kais, if you want to go ahead and pass those out, if... Um, so if you didn't get one of those as he comes by, be sure and grab those uh, there. Keegan, you want to help him? <clears throat> Next week when we do the announcements, during the announcements, you all can do that uh, portion of this. I'll try to remember... <clears throat> There's nothing on the notes for a little bit, so if you'll listen while they're passing those out, we can kind of jump into the introduction part of this here. <clears throat> Valentine's Day is coming up uh, pretty quick, just if you didn't know that. It's coming up. We've been talking about the Valentine banquet, so men, one more time, Valentine's Day is coming up pretty soon. <laughs> Valentine's Day is, okay, I just try my best here, okay? <clears throat> so the, the question around time, Valentine's, of course, 
with the hearts and all the cute stuff that's related to it. The big thing about Valentine's Day is it's a holiday primarily about love and about the promotion of love. And so the question maybe could be posed this way. What is love? It's a good, it's a good question to ask. What is love? And I know some people might be uh, thinking through uh, real technical definitions. Well, the Bible's got agape love and phileo love. And, and then, of course, there's uh, eros, you know, and other types of love. And, and you could give a real technical biblical answer. <clears throat> but sometimes the best people to ask are the humble, simple children. So these are responses given by four to eight-year-olds of what they say love is when they were asked, what, what is love? Mark, age six, said this, love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. <clears throat> no truer definition of love. Amen. Rebecca, age eight, said it this way, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Amen. Well, that was a pretty good one. That's a good explanation of love. Danny, age seven, said this, <clears throat> Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Amen. There you go. And make sure it's just right. Yeah. Sorry, Danny, but uh, she can taste that coffee all she wants, and it'll never taste good because coffee doesn't taste good. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> some of y'all, some of y'all are like, I ain't listening anymore. <laughs> I'm not a coffee drinker, so. <clears throat> Tommy H. Six said it this way: Love is like a little old woman <clears throat> and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. <clears throat> yep. Yep. Elaine, age five, said it this way. Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Oh, yeah. That's true love right there. Absolutely. Yep. <clears throat> A four-year-old boy saw his next-door neighbor, an elderly gentleman, who had recently lost his wife crying. The little boy <clears throat> went into the old man's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked what he had said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Nothing. I just helped him cry. In our modern era, unfortunately, we've got a society that has lost sight of what the definition of love truly is. <clears throat> love, of course, we understand is not so much a, uh, a feeling it's a verb, it's an action, it's something that you do biblically. And so what we want to do here, John is going to help us understand, is that when we become part of Christ, we have no problem loving the things that Christ loves. God enables us to not only love God, we love Him because He first loved us, but it also enables us to love others the way that we would want to be loved, to treat others the way that... Actually, it goes so far that Christ even talks about loving our enemies. Isn't it funny that John doesn't go to that point in this text? He doesn't talk about, oh, you'll know you're a Christian because you'll love people that hate you. No, he says, you'll know you're a Christian because you love people that love God just like you do. 
Well, where'd that come from? Well, it comes from the very words of Jesus himself. You remember Jesus said, they will know you because of your love one for another. It amazes me that Jesus didn't say, people are going to know you're a Christian because of the way you talk or the way you act or the clothes you wear or uh, the way you know how to act like the Christian uh, people act in groups when they get together. You know, he said, people will know that you're a believer because you have love one for another. And they'll say, what is going on here? You people have nothing in common. You're different uh, ethnicities. You're different socioeconomical status. You're different ages. You, ha you have nothing in common with one another. And we would say this, we have everything in common with each other. We have the most important thing in common with one another. We both are believers in Christ. And that gives us a basis of fellowship that is far better than everything else. I've said it many times before. I'll say it again. <clears throat> it's one of the reasons why I'm not a real big fan of a cowboy church or a biker church or a, a hippie church or whatever church you want to have out there. Uh, boy, I've heard of all a bunch of different kinds because my basis of fellowship with you doesn't have to do with the fact that we're both cowboys or we're both bikers. or we're both. Our basis of fellowship has to do with the fact that we're both Christians. Uh, we assemble because we want to worship the Lord. And so John gives us <coughs> this understanding in the text that we are to have love one for another. It is a test to show that we are indeed believers. So let's uh, just by way of review, <coughs> see John's journey that he's given us so far uh, through the book. OK, <coughs> so the first part there, of course, verses one through four. It was this, Jesus brings joy, so be joyful in Christ, which is just a reminder, quit looking everywhere for joy when it's right in front of you. It's Jesus. <clears throat> then in John, and we're going to start giving these names by test, okay? we kind of be given longer explanations of these verses. We'll kind of summarize it a little bit further. In verses 5 through 7, <clears throat> we had the test of, of sin. Or we might say it this way, do you live in habitual sin with no repentance? Red flag. Somebody who can live in just constant sin with no remorse, no regret, no repentance, no desire to be right with God, unless they're afraid they're going to get caught by somebody else and there'll be consequences, then it might be a moment of saying this, I'm truly a believer, because a believer wants to be right with the Lord. It doesn't want to live in habitual sin. <clears throat> Another test, verses 8, uh, John 1, 8 through John 2, 2. This test, of course, is the test of concealing. When you sin, you have one of two options. You either confess it or you will conceal it. Do you believe you are without sin or do you minimize the wickedness of your sin? <clears throat> An unbeliever is somebody who would take their sin. It's not that big of a deal. What's the big deal? It's, it only causes separation between me and God. What's the big deal? Right? A believer recognizes the great harm that sin causes and wants to be right with the Lord. Okay, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6, we talked about last week, which is the test of obedience. <coughs> now, the test of obedience, <coughs> do you have a desire to follow and obey the Word of God? <coughs> now, again, we, we talked about it last week, that <coughs> when you get saved, you have fellowship with Christ, and if Christ is moving in, in this direction, then it just goes to figure that if we're walking with him and we are striving to be like him, then we would have obedience to the word. 
because he is the living word, we ought to have obedience to the written word. <clears throat> John gives a pretty good understanding of that. So we could kind of summarize where we've been thus far and, and kind of look at it in the negative light, the test of sin and the test of concealment, and then the positive light, the test of obedience. Say this, if someone's truly saved, there's a desire for them to be in good standing with the Lord. Amen. Does that mean that they are without sin? No, absolutely not. It's it, very clear in chapter 1 that if somebody says that they're without sin, they're deceiving themselves, they're lying to themselves because we all commit trespasses against God. So when we do that, 1 John 1, 9, we ought to confess our sins, confess those things to God, and be in good standing with Him and get right with Him. Okay? And so John has been developing this idea and helping us understand this idea of <coughs> love for God's Word helps us not want to sin and helps us want to obey. Now, closely tied to this, because, uh, again, I'm not going to re-preach it, but the first part of chapter 2, where he talks about the idea that to love God is to walk in obedience to God. Now he's going to talk about to love God is to love others. Now, uh, again, someone said, well, why, why doesn't he really harp on this idea of love God? Well, I think it's easy for us to abstractly love God, Right? People have no problem showing up at church and, and swaying their hands in the air and, and singing songs for two hours about how much they love a, a deity. You can find all over our culture, people have no problem with that, but then somebody crosses them just a little bit the wrong way and they lose their mind. They just explode on them and get angry. And so John gives us a very tangible way of seeing this. This is not in the abstract, this is in the concrete, because John says this, one of the clearest ways of identifying do you have a right relationship with God is it will overflow to a right relationship with other believers. Amen. We're not even talking about enemies, we're talking about people that are walking the same direction you are. And so he says here, if there's conflict constantly, you show up and you get around other believers and you're like, oh, I hate being around other Christians. I was a youth pastor for a while. There's some teenagers that I really, honestly, I said this, they claim to have a relationship with Christ, will say this, based on their own testimony, I'll say this, they are not saved. I hate coming to this church. I hate all you people. I just hate being around. I hate hearing about Jesus. I hate hearing preaching. I hate sitting around all these Sunday school people. I just want to go be with my friends. Yeah. By their own admission, they're basically saying this, I love God but I hate everything that God loves. Well, something doesn't work there. Amen. And so what John is saying here is he says, when we have this uh, love for God and we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it then overflows by this. We start to love the people that God loves. Man, I tell you what, I, I get more excited about being around other believers than anybody else. Amen. Mm. Amen. Most of my life is spent around other believers. So that's really... I mean, it's really actually weird for me when I go out and I'm around people that are actually just living in debauched sin. It's, it's weird. I go out there. Some of y'all are like, man, that's my everyday job. You know, I'm around people like that all the time. But I get around people that are just blasphemers and cursing and, I mean, just, you know, drinking and just, you know, blah, just unsaved and they're proud of it. And I get around that and I'm like, man, they need Jesus, you know. You try to witness to them, talk to them. 
listen, I can hang out with somebody like that, but it is, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's weird. There's a fellowship that's just not there. We might have a lot in common, and we might have everything in common. We might have kids the same age. We might love the same sports. We might, but I'm telling you, the basis of fellowship just isn't the same as me getting around somebody who might not have any of those same markers, and yet they're a believer, and I can just have awesome, sweet fellowship with them. Amen. There's something different there, isn't there? Amen. Listen, what John is saying is <clears throat> when you're saved, you love the things that God loves. So let's, let's take a look at this uh, passage of Scripture <clears throat> that's presented before us here. Of course, Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, we won't turn there and look at that, but basically that's the, hey, what's the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. The second is like unto it, right? Love others. And so here John is helping us understand this love test. It'll manifest in this love for others, okay? <clears throat> so love, an old, new commandment. Now, the, the wording that John uses here <clears throat> of this old, new commandment confuses a lot of people <clears throat> because he says, I'm not going to give you a new commandment. This isn't a new commandment. It's from the beginning. You've heard this commandment a hundred times. And then in verse number eight, he says, again, a new commandment I write unto you. And you're like, okay, hold on just a second. You just spent two verses telling me this was not a new commandment. And then you said it's a new commandment. What is going on here? Well, Pump the brakes here a little bit, and let's get a good understanding of what John is, is talking about. Okay, so <clears throat> the Gnostics claim. You remember uh, the Gnostics is the group <coughs> that John is mainly confronting here. And this is the group <coughs> that is um, thinking the body and the spirit are separate, and you can be a, a sinless all the while while living in absolute debauchery and sin. And so <coughs> John, <coughs> excuse me. John was just a legalist in their mind. And he was making up all kinds of new stuff and adding all kinds of stuff to the gospel message. Love in their mind was not necessary. It wasn't something that was needed to be there. And John has to come in and be very blatant and be very clear to the Gnostics that love indeed is necessary. So he clarifies and says this, I'm not giving you anything new. This is actually something that has been written from the beginning. It's an old commandment. Now, John, of course, wants to clarify this mischaracterization that John's trying to add things to the gospel and trying to muddy the waters. And so John says, no, 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 this is not a new thing. This has been around for a long time. So he says in Leviticus 19.18, <clears throat> Leviticus 19.18, he says this, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, <clears throat> that's a long time before Jesus. That there was this commandment given in the law, in the book of Leviticus, that said this, Love your neighbor. That, that's a really old commandment. <clears throat> It was not only written in the Old Testament, but it was further illustrated in the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43 and 44, it says it this way. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. 
and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Here's what Christ did here in the New Testament. Is he saying, listen, this is not a new thing that you've heard. You've heard it said of old that you ought to love people. And so even Jesus in his teaching, he further expounds on it and says, you ought to love your enemies too. But he comes in there and he says, this is no new thing. This is something <coughs> that has been talked about for a long time that you ought to love one another. So the, John here, he's coming in in 1 John and he's saying what was said in Leviticus. He's saying what Jesus said in the New Testament. He's saying this, this is not a new commandment. This is something that has been around for a long, long time. It is an old commandment. But it's a new commandment. Stick with me here, okay? Now, John's audience would have been familiar with this terminology of a new commandment. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. Although the commandment to love was not new... Jesus expressly called it a new commandment. He did this because he explained and personified through his life and death love like it had never been seen before. Now, I'll put this up on the screen. We'll read it and then I'll describe it to you. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, it says it this way. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Hold on just a second, Jesus. That's not a new commandment. <clears throat> That's an old one. That one's been talked about way back in Leviticus, all through the Old Testament. You already talked about it. You yourself already. How is this a new commandment? Well, you know what's happening right now with Jesus? He is washing the disciples' feet. Judas is about to betray him. They've all been fighting who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus is down there, and he has so humbled himself. God himself is down there washing their dirty feet, and he gives them this lesson when he says this, I'm going to give you a new commandment. You look at each other, love each other. Now, Jesus is giving more clarity to this commandment, and thus taking what was an old commandment and making it new. And so in making this new commandment, he then says this, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Now, l- listen, when he's, he's giving this new commandment, he's saying this, listen, you've always heard that you ought to love other people, but here's what I'm telling you now. Look at one another, the brethren You love one another like I am loving you, washing your feet right now. By this kind of love, love that the world could never know, love that can only be expressed when you have the love of God shed abroad in your heart, that kind of love, all the world will know that you're my disciple. Listen, people ought to know there's a difference about you, not because of what you don't do, but because of the love that you express to the people right here in this room. How you doing? Think about it. Jesus is here simply telling his disciples, love one another like I'm loving you right now, which he was washing their feet. Now, I love you guys to death, but I'm not going to wash your feet. It's just not a part of our culture. But there are other ways that we show love toward one another, isn't there? 
I, I think it's beyond amazing to me how many uh, independent Baptists uh, just get almost overboard in some areas of outward displays of Christian manifestations of what Christians ought to do. People, people won't know you're a believer unless you dress a certain way. Now, listen, I'm, I'm all for dress standards. and You're never going to hear me preach against them or anything. I'm all for them. I believe the Bible tells you how to dress modest. People, people will know, you know, you pull up to a red light and people hear what you're listening to on the radio. They'll never know you're a Christian. Now, listen, I, I, I understand there's merit to all those statements. But that is not what Jesus said that the world would know that you're a believer by. The, the, Jesus said that the way that people know you're a believer is because of how you treat other people right here. And unfortunately, oftentimes the world is soured by church because they say, no, I'm a bunch of hypocrites that backbite against each other and talk bad about each other behind their back. And I never go to a church again. Somebody hurt me there. Come on. Have you ever heard these things? Amen. What a black eye of the name of Jesus that we give him when we treat each other that way. Because Jesus said one of the greatest manifestations of people realizing I want to have what they have is the love that we express towards one another. Amen. And again, ask, how you doing? How we doing? Jesus said we ought to love one another. So John reiterates this and says this. It's an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment. It's an old, new commandment that is given. Now, <clears throat> John has spoken in very clear categories. You either are or you aren't. You're this or you're a liar. Now, some look at that and maybe they go, wow, he's a little aggressive. He's black and white. No gray area for John. Much of the Bible is not that way. There's a grace and allowances there. But in John's book, he's not that way. Now, we have to understand why he is that way. So we need to talk about it here. Okay, so light versus darkness. We say it this way. There's no gray area with John. For John, it's an either-or dynamic. There's no gray area. There's no third option. For John, it's light or darkness. Saved or unsaved. You're either obeying or you're disobeying. You either confess your sin or you concealed it. You're either holy or you're sinful. You're either no stumbling in the light or blind and lost in the darkness. You either have love or you have hate. He's got very diametric opposed black and white views here. Now for us, <clears throat> we can have a hard time rectifying these extremes. Especially <clears throat> if it's to be one is to automatically not be the other. Because for some of us, we might say, well, some days I'm this, and other days I'm this, and John's like, if you're this, then you're not that. And, I'm the, and for some, they might be like, well, it's kind of hard to fall into one of these camps or the other. Now, remember the audience that John is writing to. Context matters a lot. John is writing to a group of believers that have people that are coming in, and they're casting all kinds of doubt and kind of throwing in all these weird things in there. And so John comes in, and he goes, no. You either are or you aren't. It's either this or it's that. <clears throat> so he removes all the question marks and he's trying to paint a very clear picture. You're either in this camp or you're in this camp. So in understanding those extremes of the black and white, it's a clear and cut test that he's trying to give us. No one, not even John himself, would expect everyone to be perfect in every area. 
John has already talked about this, but he doesn't expect you to never sin. He doesn't expect you to never disobey or never to conceal sin or never give in to temptation or never stumble or never act unloving. You might say, well, sometimes I don't like people in church. <coughs> Me too, right? But understand, John gives these very black and white descriptions here, not to say you'll never struggle with some of that, but to say this, if, you, if your whole life is opposite of that, then there's a red flag that comes up. So he gives these extremes to help us understand, not that we need to be perfect, but that the summation of our life ought to be that. <clears throat> Let me give you some illustrations here. So the summation of a life or matter is really what John is talking about here. You know, Abraham is called a man of faith in the Bible. <clears throat> Actually, Abraham's called a great man of faith. He's in the hall of faith. Did Abraham always act in perfect faith? Well, how can he be a man of faith then? Why did God call him a man of great faith and put him in the hall of faith? Come on, look what he did with doubting that God would provide. He went and got Ishmael, right? Hagar and Ishmael and all that mess. What a lack of faith. Why would God call him a man of faith? Because if you look at the totality, the summation of his life, what do you see? You see a life of faith. It doesn't mean he was always full of faith. But it means his life in totality was mostly with faith. What about David? David's called a man after God's own heart. Boy, when I read the story with Bathsheba, I sit there and go, that's exactly what God would do. No. He was not after God's own heart at that moment in his life. Not at all. And yet, if you look at the totality of David's life, what do you find? A man who had a heart after God. Yeah, absolutely. What about Paul? Paul's considered one of the best Christians that's ever lived, and yet, according to his own estimation, he was the chief of all sinners. Now listen, we could go <clears throat> life after life, and I'm thankful we have these recorded in the Scripture because there are no perfect examples in the Bible of people that just never mess up and never have problems. I mean, Daniel and Joseph and a few like that, they're not recorded, but they had problems. And I'm thankful for that because it helps us understand this. God can look at my life as a life of loving the believers, and yet there are times where maybe I can struggle with that. There can be a life that loves to obey the book and loves to obey God, and yet there can be times that I struggle with that. And so John is helping us understand that even though we might struggle, there's not a habitual lifestyle of sin and disobedience and hatred of the brethren. You understand the difference? And so John is helping us understand that. So we can summarize the text, summarize what John is giving us here in this way. We've been calling this the central idea of the text. He says it this way, John asserts that a person who claims to be in the light is proven to be in the light when they have love for the brethren. Somebody who says, I'm in the light. Well, we can prove they're in the light because they have love for the brethren. That's what John says. So maybe a more simple way of saying that is like this. A saved person loves the brethren. A person that's truly saved will enjoy loving the brethren. Now, I've got five things here. We have to do these really, really quick. Okay, <clears throat> so we say this. If I'm to love the brethren, then the question is, what is love and how is it manifest? 
Now, I've got like three pages of notes here, and we're just going to do this, boom, 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 rapid fire. All right, here we go. <clears throat> so the first one is this, love explained. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> In the scriptures, if you've never heard this explained before, love <clears throat> is a verb. It is an action. It is something that you do. For God so loved the world that he gave. Okay? Love is not an, a feeling or an emotion. It's something that we do. Max Anders said it this way, Love can be understood as the steady direction of the will for the good of another. Now, listen, God wants us to have this kind of love, this kind of sacrificial love, washing people's feet love, not literally, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, love one another that away. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. So it's an explanation of it. Number two, love's emphasis. <clears throat> love was a part of the law, but Christ made it the most important aspect of the law. In the Old Testament, love was just a part of all these different commandments, but Jesus elevated it to a position where it held the first and second, and he said, on those two, everything else rests on those two. What emphasis he actually placed on love, meaning that there is no greater thing that you can do, meaning the greatest commandment, the greatest activities for you to do as a believer is first to love God, and then as an outflow of loving God, you will love people. Yeah, I mean, on those things, everything else of the Christian life falls within the realm of those two uh, categories. And so that's the emphasis that he placed on love there. Christ highlighted, underlined, italicized, and bolded love. It was the most important thing. The third thing, love's elevation. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, God's people were commanded to love their neighbor as themselves. But Christ raised the basis of love. We are not to love others as we would love ourselves. We are to love others how? As Christ loved us. As Christ loves. Philippians chapter 2 gives a great explanation of this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. Right? Now listen. That takes things to a whole new level. Is I'm not supposed to love Brother Kyle like I want him to love me. I'm supposed to love Brother Kyle like how Christ loves him. That takes things to a whole new level. I can't do that in my flesh, which is why the first and great commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength, everything you got, love him. Why? When I'm loving him and I'm able to love him because he first loved me, it sure makes it a lot easier to love Brother Kyle. <laughs> And more importantly, love Brother Kyle the way that Christ would love him. Because let's be honest, sometimes us people right here in this room, we act unlovely, don't we? Amen. We can be quite sour grapes sometimes. And sometimes we're having a bad day. That happens. We get in the flesh and we're not where we need to be. And we show up at church with a chip on our shoulder. But isn't it a great thing when there's other believers who don't take it personal? And instead of... You know, well, fine. They learn to absorb the blow and give you a hug anyways and love on you. Yeah, that's the elevation of love that Christ gave us there. He says, man, don't love like how you want to be loved, loving Christ. Okay, fourth, love's extent. <laughs> this one's hard. Love everybody. 
the Jews took advantage of that loophole. Who's my neighbor? You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? And she said, well, who is the neighbor? Right? They say this. Um, Jesus kind of expanded on that of who your neighbor is. Just give you a simple explanation. Here's basically the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us. Anybody that God puts in our path, in our daily life, is our neighbor. Which means this. You get to love them. You even are to love your enemies. And then fifth, love's escalation. Like the appreciation of a house... Love only becomes more and more valuable and important as the light invades the darkness. There will always be new opportunities to love and serve others. Which is simply say this, we're living in very dark days and we're living in very um, elevated times where if you look on the horizon, there's probably more persecution for believers, not less. Well, what does that do? That gives a lot more opportunities for brethren to love one another and for us to love our enemies and for us to love. I'm saying this, over time, I'll say this, as you grow in Christ and as the days get darker and darker, if Christ tarries is coming, love only becomes that much more valuable. The light only becomes that much brighter. I'm thankful for the uh, testimony of the four and eight-year-olds, uh, what they think love is, but nothing compares to the explanation that Christ gives us about what love is. Uh, is simply just ask this, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have their best interest at heart? Are you compelled by your love from Christ to love others like he loved you? If there is no love for the brethren, then we might start to ask the question, is his love real in your life? Because when Christ's love is shed abroad in your heart, we start to love the things and, in turn, the people that God loves. Let's all stand as we come to a time of invitation here tonight.